Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. As I think many of you already know, when the Bible was originally written, it didn't include the numerical chapters and verses that you see when you read your modern-day English Bibles. Uh, those notations were developed in the 13th century by Stephen Langton, a man who served as the Archbishop of Canterbury. And his intention uh, was to develop a, a reference system so that Christians can more easily identify and distinguish specific portions of the Bible. And that's exactly what his system of chapters and verses does. Thanks to Archbishop Langton, uh, you can now ask somebody to read John 3.16 and they'll be able to easily reference that exact portion of Scripture that you're directing them to. And that's a good thing. That's a very helpful thing. But there's an unintended side effect to dividing the Bible into chapters and verses. It can cause us to miss the internal continuity that flows through each of the books of the Bible. Because the chapters and verse divisions divide the book into smaller segments, we have a tendency to lift those smaller segments out of the original context in which they were written, which means we try to understand those uh, smaller portions of Scripture um, in isolation to the rest of the, the book that they were originally written in. And that's not the best way to study the Bible. And to add to this propensity, many of the Bible, modern-day Bible publishers um, have placed headings within the Scripture text. And if you look uh, in your Bible at how Proverbs 1 is printed, you'll probably see a heading that separates verse 7 from verse 8. In the New King James, the heading reads, Shun Evil Counsel. In the ESV and the NASB, the heading reads, uh, The Enticement of Sinners. Now understand that these headings are not part of the inspired Word of God. They've been added by the publishers. And once again, the, the intention was to, to add something helpful to the reader. These headings can indeed be very helpful. When you're scanning over the pages of the Bible, uh, you, the, the headings will allow you to quickly zero in on the passage that you're looking for. But the unintended side effect is that they might suggest a division in the text where there is really no uh, division. So in the case of Proverbs 1, you might be inclined to, dis to disassociate verse 8 from verse 7. But the reality is Solomon intended for verse 8 to be read in the context of verse 7. When Solomon wrote that fools despise wisdom and instruction at the end of verse 7, he introduces a universal principle, every person who despises wisdom and instruction is a fool, as Solomon uses that word. Every person who despises wisdom and instruction is a fool. But then Solomon, Solomon immediately applies that universal principle to the context of children being given wisdom and instruction from their parents. 
Solomon writes in verse 8, My son, hear the instruction of your father and do not forsake the law of your mother. So what is Solomon saying to his son here in verse 8? He's saying, don't be a fool. Fools despise wisdom and and instruction. Your mother and I are giving you wisdom and instruction. Don't despise what we're giving to you. Instead, listen to what we're saying to you. Pay attention to what we're saying to you. Follow what we're saying to you. So by reading verse 8 in connection with verse 7, we can easily conclude that the child who refuses to follow his parents' instruction is either a fool or is someone acting like a fool. He's either a fool or somebody acting like a fool. What's the difference? Well, the fool, in, in the, the case of our sermon text, is the child who has a history and pattern of despising his parents' instruction. The fool is the child who rolls his eyes as his parents uh, give him instruction. It goes in one ear and right out the other ear. He wants to make his own decisions in life, but he knows that his parents will disapprove of those decisions, and so he tries to conceal what he's doing so that his parents don't know. And this leads him to tell lies to his parents. This leads to a breakdown in his relationship with his parents. And this leads to strife and contention with his parents. That's a fool. That's the person Solomon says despises wisdom and instruction and hence rightly bears the label fool. Contrast that person with the person who's acting like a fool. The person who's acting like a fool is the child who truly wants to honor his parents and really does think highly of his parents and has the recognizable history of obeying his parents' wisdom and instruction, but sometimes he ignores their wisdom and instruction so that he can go do his own thing. That's also wrong. The fact that I'm contrasting the person who acts like a fool with a person who is a fool does not suggest that the person who's only acting like a fool is not sinning. No, he's sinning. Sin is always sin, no matter how often or uh, in what context it's committed. So the child who acts like a fool is still guilty of despising his parents' wisdom and instruction. He just doesn't do it often and regularly and consistently like the child who really is a fool. But there's another difference between the fool and the one who acts like a fool. In fact, this is the chief difference. The chief difference is that the one who acts like a fool will recognize the sin and repent of it. The fool will not. The one who acts like a fool will humble himself and bring his life back into submission to his parents, whereas the fool will remain hardened in his sin. The fool will continually make excuses for why his disobedience should not be laid at his feet. For the fool, it's always somebody else's fault. It's my parents' fault. They're so overbearing. It's the pastor's fault. He's always filling my parents' head with these weird ideas. It's the church's fault. It's the church we go to. All the other families go along with these weird ideas. So that encourages my parents to try to enforce those weird things in the context of our own home. But I'm not going to go for that. I'm not going to tolerate that. I'm not going to give in. I will maintain my freedom. 
Children, what God is saying to you through Solomon's pen is that you have a responsibility to follow the wisdom and instruction that you are receiving from your parents. That's the message here. You have a responsibility to follow the wisdom and instruction that you are receiving from your parents. Understand that God did not make a mistake when he placed you in the family that you're in right now. He gave you the specific parents that you have because he knows what's best for you. God has a unique calling for every one of us, every one of you children. God has a unique calling. He has given you spiritual gifts that can be used in fulfilling that unique calling. He has given you talents and endowments that can be used in fulfilling that unique calling. And he has given you the specific parents that you have to develop you in your unique calling. So God says that you need to listen to their wisdom and instruction. And he promises that when you do listen to their wisdom and instruction, that you will enjoy blessings and benefits from God. Your parents' instruction, according to verse 9, will be a graceful ornament on your head and chains around your neck. Your parents' instruction, according to verse 9, will be a graceful ornament on your head and chains around your neck. And this is obviously an analogy. The ornament and chains spoken of here are things that adorn the person who's wearing them. Solomon's analogy is comparing your parents' instruction with jewelry that adds beauty to who you are. But understand that jewelry doesn't do any good unless you wear it. If you receive jewelry and you put it in a drawer and leave it there, then it does nothing to add beauty to your person. In order for the ornament and chain to have the effect that God is promising you, you need to be wearing them. You need to be putting them upon your person and letting them adorn you. Realize, it's one thing for your parents to speak instruction into your life, but, it's, but if you're not receiving that instruction and obe- obediently applying it to your life, then you're not going to experience the benefits that Solomon is is writing about in verse 9. Now, somebody might be questioning, thinking to themselves, you say that children have a responsibility to obey their parents, but what if the parents are not Christians? Or what if the parents are Christians, but they're instructing their child to do something sinful? Does a child still have to obey his, his or her parents uh, under those conditions, whether they're, they're not Christians or they are Christians and they're telling the child to do something that's wrong. Well, the first thing I'd like to point out is that Solomon, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does not address that point in our sermon text. He just doesn't deal with it. Uh, he's writing to his own son, so he knows the dynamics that are involved in the home, he knows that the parents, which are him and his wife, aren't, are, are not mistreating this child that he's writing to. But even beyond that point, right, the original audience is Solomon's son, but 
that's not the only audience that Solomon is writing to. Even beyond the original audience, we recognize that our sermon text is not merely the instruction of Solomon to his son. This is God's holy and inspired word written for every family. God has included this in the Bible because it's his instruction to every child. The assumption in our sermon text, therefore, is that there are godly parents who are speaking God's righteous wisdom and instruction to their children. That's the assumption. Godly parents who are speaking God's righteous wisdom and instruction to their children. It's not that God or Solomon are ignorant about dysfunctional families. It's just that this is not the place in Scripture where God addresses dysfunctional families. The assumption in our sermon text is that the parents are godly parents and they are speaking godly, righteous instruction to their children. But second, I need to point out that nowhere in the Bible are children told that it's okay to disobey or dishonor their parents simply because their parents are not believers. God expects every child to honor, respect, and submit to their parents, even if their parents do not obey the word of God. There's a parallel between the way a child must submit to his parents and the way a wife must submit to her husband. Several passages in the Bible say that the wife is to submit to her husband. Uh, but the, the question is, is typically asked, what if the husband's not a believer? What if the husband doesn't respect and obey the word of God? Well, 1 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2 address that question. It says, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So Peter is telling wives to submit to their own husbands even if the husband is not obeying the word of God. If this is true for wives, then it is true for children as well. Even if parents are not obeying the word of God, children still need to honor and submit to them. But notice what Peter also says in, that, in those two verses. He says that wives uh, still need to li live respectful lives of pure conduct. Even though they're living in submission to a man who's not obeying the word, they still need to live respectful lives of pure conduct. And the point that Peter is making is that when the husband sees his wife's respectful and pure conduct, then he might be won by that. That may have an effect upon him that eventually reaches his heart and turns it to Christ. But the point that I want to draw out of this passage to call your attention to is that even though the wife is living in submission to her husband who does not obey the word of God, she still does. She still lives a respectful life of pure conduct as defined by God's word, which means she prioritizes her obedience to God above her obedience to her husband. So as long as submission to her husband is not in conflict with submission to God, she submits to both. But when the husband demands that she do something sinful, she has a higher obligation to submit to God. So she says to her husband, I want to submit to you, and I'm willing to submit to you, but I cannot submit to you if, it, if, if you are requiring me to sin against God. 
I must obey a God above all others, including my husband. And the same principle applies to children. So long as their parents are not requiring them to sin, then they have an obligation to submit to their parents' instruction. But if the parent tells a child to do something that God says not to do, or to not do something that God says ought to be done, then the child needs to explain to his parents that he wants to submit to them, he's willing to submit to them, but only when submitting to them doesn't require him to sin against God. Solomon is assuming that this is understood. When Solomon says that parents' wisdom and instruction are like an ornament and chains, he's presupposing that the wisdom and instruction are righteous. He's presupposing that they are not requiring their children to sin, that they're not pushing them down the path of sin and destruction. So if a child thinks he cannot submit to his parents on the grounds that doing so would be a sin, then that child should go to his parents and explain this to them. He shouldn't just ignore their instruction, uh, pretend like he didn't hear it, or just defiantly you know, uh, refuse to do what they say. He needs to explain to them why he feels compelled to reject their instruction. And when the child does this respectfully, he's still honoring his parents. That is honoring a parent, even when you are challenging something that a parent says according to Scripture. Even though he's challenging the integrity of the instruction that the parents are giving, he is still honoring his parents by doing so in a respectful way. And if the parents are Christian parents, then that child should have every confidence that the conversation will resolve itself in a God-glorifying way. Why do I say this? Because Christian parents are committed to the Word of God. And Christian parents are in submission to the Word of God. So the, to the young people who are here this morning, if, if there's ever a time that you believe obedience to your parents will require you to sin, then bring that to the attention of your parents and discuss it. You have Christian parents, dear children. You have parents that are pliable to the Word of God, meaning when the Word of God demands something of them, they're willing to yield to that. And if you can show them something that they're not seeing, if God has opened your eyes to something that your parents are not seeing, then respectfully bring that to your parents, discuss it with them, and let the Holy Spirit work reconciliation in that matter. Your parents will respect you for that. They will be open to discussing it with you. And you might be able to show them something that they've overlooked and they may make the necessary corrections to their instructions so that you are no longer being asked to do something sinful. Or maybe, and here's another possibility, maybe as you bring that to your parents for discussion, they'll show you something that you were overlooking in the situation. And if this happens, then your submission to their wisdom and instruction will add the beauty and blessings to your life and character that Solomon says it will. In verse 10, Solomon transitions to a specific form of instruction to his son. Uh, here he warns, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If sinners entice you, do not consent. And then from verses 11 through 16, 
Solomon gives several examples of how sinners might entice his son. He tells how it might be enticing to his son to mug somebody in the street and, or in some back alley. He tells how it might be enticing to steal from other people in order to enrich oneself. He tells how it might be enticing to inflict violence upon those um, other people in order to get his own way, get one's own way. And after giving these examples, Solomon explains in verses 17 and 18 that the harm foolish sinners inflict on others will be returned onto them by God. That's how God works. What, uh, What they intended for harm to others, God reverses it and brings it upon them. And then Solomon concludes in verse 19, so are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its owners. So here we see a model for Christian parents to follow. I've been addressing children during most of the sermon, but at this point, uh, it's appropriate to address parents. Solomon, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, doesn't hide the wicked things of life from his children. Rather, he introduces them and explains them to his children. He explains how the wicked sneak around in the dark to take advantage of the righteous. He explains how the wicked use thievery to enrich themselves. And Solomon explains how the wicked use violence to get what they want. And Solomon is being a wise parent here. He's being wise by informing his child about wicked schemes so that the child can recognize those wicked schemes as the evil that they are. In other words, the child doesn't go blind into the world and, 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 and be hit up, hit blindside by these, by these wicked schemes. Rather, Solomon says, here's what you're going to encounter. Before you encounter it, let me tell you what you're going to encounter so when you encounter it, you know what to do. As parents, we need to equip our children to recognize wicked schemes as well. And we need to help them generate righteous responses to these wicked schemes. We should be saying to our children, do you see that guy over there? Do you see how he's lurking in the shadows? Do you see how he keeps looking over his shoulder? He's up to no good. Watch out for guys like that. Stay away from them. They are bad news. But Solomon doesn't just leave it at that. He's a realist. He knows the power of temptation. So he doesn't ignore the fact that his child is going to be enticed to participate in certain wicked schemes. In the New Testament, the apostle James writes about being enticed. In James 1, verse 14 and 15, he says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. When he is lured and enticed by what? By his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And this is a very helpful explanation of what's happening when we are tempted to sin. James is explaining that all temptations target our desires. All temptations originate by targeting one or more of our desires. And this includes righteous desires that we have. Some temptations target 
unrighteous desires that are in our heart. In fact, they plant them in our heart. The temptation plants an unrighteous desire in our heart. And those unrighteous desires need to be put off and replaced with righteous desires. It's a whole put off, put on thing that Paul writes about to the Ephesians and and, and, uh, Colossians. Put off the unrighteous desires, put on righteous desires. But there are other times in which the temptation focuses on a righteous desire that's in our heart. The temptation comes in the form of a shortcut that allows you to fulfill your righteous desire in an unrighteous way. The temptation says, I'll give you a quick and easy way to fulfill that desire that you have. Uh, You don't have to do it God's way. God's way is too hard. It takes too long. Let me show you a shortcut. You can get there much faster. That's what Solomon is describing as an enticement in our sermon text. And he knows his children are susceptible to those kind of enticements. So he's training them to recognize and reject these enticements before they experience them, before they're blindsided by them. For example, if we continue reading the wisdom and instruction Solomon is giving to his son, one of the things that he spends the most time and energy describing to his son are the enticements of sexual immorality. In chapters 5, 6, and 7, Solomon is very descriptive about the enticements of the immoral woman. What he basically says in summation of those three chapters, what he basically says is, son, there are immoral women in this world and you're going to be enticed by them. The immoral woman will flatter you with her tongue. She'll try to lure you with her eyelids. Her lips drip honey and her words are smoother than oil. You're gonna notice her beauty and she's going to offer you her intimate affections. So here's what you need to understand. There's nothing shameful about your desire for intimacy. God created you to desire intimacy. That's a righteous desire that God gave to you, but he gave it with stipulations. God says your desire for intimacy needs to be fulfilled within the context of a marriage covenant. The immoral woman will tell you that there's an easier way to fulfill that desire. She'll tell you that God's way is too difficult. It's too restrictive. She'll say, come on, let's take our fill of love until the morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. But don't listen to her. And don't lust for her in your heart. The quick and easy intimacy that she's offering is is like an arrow that will pierce you through. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lay hold of hell. She keeps you, uh, she keeps yourself so so keep yourself far away from her. Don't go near the door of her house. Don't even walk down her street because she'll come running out of her house calling to you telling you that her husband has gone away on a multi-day business trip. Stay away from her because she will drag you down to the death chambers of hell. 
don't give your intimate affections to her. Rather, save them for the wife of your youth. You let your wife's beauty and your wife's beauty alone satisfy the desires of intimacy. Be enraptured with your wife's love and let the Lord bless you tremendously. Do you see how Solomon is preparing his son for dealing with temptation? He doesn't try to pretend that temptation will not find its way into his son's heart. He identifies the desire that temptation will use to entice his son. And in this case, he helps his son understand that this is a righteous desire which needs to be fulfilled in righteous ways. And so Solomon explains the tragic consequences of of trying to fulfill that desire unrighteously. And he explains the tremendous blessings of fulfilling the desire the way God says it should be fulfilled. That's the structure of of temptation given to us in Scripture and our response to temptation. And parents adorn their children's lives with godly wisdom and instruction when they help them apply this structure of temptation and response to temptation to the various enticements that they're going to experience in this fallen world. In its simplest form, and there's always a, um, a potential hazard to reduce things to their simplest form because other very necessary things get omitted. Uh, I, gave, I just gave five steps that follow the process of identifying temptation and responding righteously to it. But I'm going to break it down even to two steps in its very simplest form, as James 1.14 provides it to us. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So parents adorn their children with wisdom and instruction when they teach their children that the, the desire for intimacy will entice them to sexual immorality. The desire for wealth will entice them to steal. The desire for affirmation will entice them to boast. The desire for information will entice them to gossip. The desire for vengeance will entice them to wrath. The desire for control will entice them to manipulate. The desire for security will entice them to be anxious. The desire for status will entice them to lie. The desire for possessions will entice them to covet. The desire for preeminence will entice them to unholy rivalries. And the desire for unholy rivalries will entice them to hate. And so on and so on and so on. As parents, as we see these things and we understand these things, we communicate them to our children so that they see and understand them. This isn't just the instruction and wisdom that parents give to children. It's also the wisdom and instruction that we give to ourselves, every one of us. If you're struggling with a recurring sin, brothers and sisters, if you're having trouble putting to death a particular sin that keeps raising its ugly head in your life, then it's possible that you're not addressing the sin at its root. 
you'll discover the root of the sin by identifying which of your desires the temptation for this particular sin is using to entice you into the sin. That's a critical element of analyzing one's own life. It's not just the sin, like, oh, I gotta stop doing that. What is that sin, what desire is that sin targeting? And once a desire is identified, the next step is to determine whether that's a righteous desire or an unrighteous desire. If it's an unrighteous desire, then you need to put off that unrighteous desire and place it with, with it, replace it with its righteous counterpart. And if it's a righteous desire, then you need to understand that having the desire is not the problem. But trying to fulfill the desire in an unrighteous way, that's the problem. So look to the word of God to discover the righteous way to fulfill the righteous desire. Or look to the word of God to find the righteous desire to put on as you put off the unrighteous desire. As was noted earlier, the wisdom and instruction of godly parents is uh, something that adorns a child's person and character. It's an adornment. When parents train their children to recognize enticements to sin and how to respond to enticements to sin, that's adorning them with precious ornaments and chains. And when the child receives this wisdom and instruction by applying it to their own lives so that they walk in this wisdom and instruction, that results in the blessings of God. God is pleased to pour out his blessings upon that child, the one who's walking in, his, in the wisdom received from his parents. And one of the notable blessings, here's, here's something that I think um, opens our eyes to something of the beauty of God and his grace towards us. One of the notable blessings that God gives to the child who's obedient and submissive to his parents' instruction is gratitude for the wisdom and instruction that his parents give him. Gratitude. It's, a, it's, a, it's actually a circular thing. The child receives the wisdom and instruction from his parents. And then the child applies that wisdom instruction to his life. And then, having applied it, he experiences the blessings of God that come with walking in obedience to his parents. And one of those blessings, there's innumerable blessings, but just one of them is gratitude for his parents and their instruction, which then brings it full circle. When this happens, the cycle just keeps repeating itself, building upon itself. As it continues to repeat itself, the child becomes more and more adorned with the beautiful ornaments and chains that his parents continue to give him out of their love for him and out of their devotion to, 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 their, to, to God and Jesus Christ. But this does not happen for the foolish child because the fool despises wisdom and instruction. The fool never gets to the blessings of God because, or the gratitude for his parents because he never receives or applies the wisdom and instruction of his parents. It begins with receiving and applying and then the blessings and gratitude flow out of that. So the fool is his, worst, his own worst enemy. He dooms himself. 
He kicks against the goads of wisdom and destruction, and he wonders why his feet hurt so much. He kicks against the goads, and he wonders why life is so difficult. He kicks against the goads and wonders why he's not enjoying the blessings of God. Earlier in the sermon, I delineated between the fool and the person who sometimes acts like a fool. Well, the reality is, every one of us is either a fool or sometimes acts like a fool, which is to say, none of us are perfect in receiving the wisdom and instruction of the Lord. None of us are perfect in righteously applying it to our own lives. Solomon's a great example of this. He possessed so much wisdom and understood so many incredible things, and yet he did not practice what he preached. He made some incredibly unwise and unrighteous choices in life. So the question before you this morning is, which are you? Are you a fool who despises wisdom and instruction? Or are you a person who sometimes acts like a fool who despises wisdom and instruction? the way you'll be able to answer this question is to look at the pattern, your pattern of repentance. The fool is right in his own eyes. So he doesn't see the need to repent. As I mentioned earlier, the, the foolish child who rejects his parents' wisdom and instruction thinks that he's right and everybody else is wrong. His parents are wrong, the pastor is wrong, the other families in the church are wrong. Everyone else is wrong so why should I be the one who repents? But the person who sometimes acts like a fool recognizes that he has been acting like a fool. And so he repents. He goes to his parents and says, I need to talk to you about something. I've been acting like a fool. I haven't been wearing the beautiful ornaments of wisdom and instruction that you gave to me. I need to confess my sins to you, and I need to confess my sins to God. The husband, who sometimes acts like a fool, needs to do the same thing with his wife. The wife, who sometimes acts like a fool, needs to do the same thing with her husband. All of us, and all of our relationships, when we sometimes act like fools, we need to bear the righteous fruit of repentance and confess our sins to one another and to God. But the fool will not do this. You will not see the righteous fruit of repentance in the fool's life. So let me pose a question to you again. Are you a fool or are you somebody who sometimes acts like a fool? If you're somebody who sometimes acts like a fool, then you understand that your sins have been covered by the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, who never, ever has acted like a fool. Which means you're, under, you're, you're, you're no longer under the condemnation of your sin. You've been delivered by Christ from that condemnation, and you enjoy peace and reconciliation with God. And for that very reason, you're quick to want to enjoy peace and reconciliation with everybody else in, in your life. But if your life does not bear the righteous fruit of repentance, then the inevitable consequence is that you are a fool, whether you acknowledge it or not. 
the lack of repentance, the, the, the evidence of, the lack of repentance is evidence that you are a fool, which means you are under the condemnation of the Lord. You are storing up wrath for the day of wrath, Romans 2 says. Uh, you have a desperate need to be forgiven of your sins and to be reconciled with God. And that can only happen through Jesus Christ. That can only happen through submission to Jesus Christ, to calling upon him to have mercy upon you, that his righteous blood would cover you and his, his righteous sacrifice would be sufficient for taking away your sins, purging them from yourself, making an atonement for them in order that God's wrath is no, more stored, no longer stored up against you. And so I plead with you this morning, if you think you are a fool, if you know you are a fool, I plead with you to call upon God to have mercy upon you through the work and person of Jesus Christ. Don't wait until tomorrow. Don't put off what must be done today. Today is the acceptable time. Today is a day of salvation. Today is a day you should be crying out to God to have mercy upon you. Amen. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted, copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George, available at nathanclarkgeorge.com.